0: learned anything from these past couple of years my fellow americans is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis america out loud pulse brings together the top experts in health care related fields to keep you a beat ahead
1: my mother always told me two wrongs don't make a right I'm Dr. Marilyn Singleton, and welcome to America Out Loud, Pulse. When I was in law school, critical race theory was an academic exercise who's reserved for graduate school mental gymnastics. Unfortunately, the overlords have used the reality of lingering racism to divide those who have spent years trying to get us to all come together. Improving fairness and living conditions for all in our society has taken an ugly turn. We went from striving for equal opportunity to a contest to see who is the most oppressed victim. Also, people used to be happy that there were all kinds of folks who did good works for their communities, no matter what their political leanings were. Now, only the people who swear upon the social justice gods that our society is driven by the struggle between the oppressors and the oppressed are allowed to be called righteous. To be legitimate, you have to reject the dominant exploitative system of the United States that are largely reliant on anti-Black racism, colonialism, cis-heteropatriarchy, white supremacy, and capitalism as the White Coats for Black Wives says. The recent rise in anti-Semitism is the canary in the coal mine for the growing hatred of those who are not like you. Ironically, at UC Berkeley, home of the 60s free speech movement, has so-called woke campus groups seeking to ban speakers who support Israel. Demonizing others to prop up another group is just plain unjust. Jewish tradition warns that one must not pursue justice through unjust means. This concept applies to all of us. It's unjust when medical institutions had race as a factor in distributing anti-COVID medications or in the name of reparations favor black heart failure patients for treatment. There are health disparities, but we need more open discussion on dealing with them without shortchanging others. It's time for us to remember that line from the 1946 poem by Martin Niemöller. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. The dangerous path of modern-day wokeism fosters group biases rather than focus on an individual's character. So let's have more debate. It's time to speak up. My guest today is a longtime Jewish leader, and we'll discuss how woke ideology shuts down discussion of sensitive topics and is a breeding ground for anti-Semitism. David Bernstein is the founder of the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values. The institute supports viewpoint diversity, counters woke ideology in the Jewish community, and opposes novel forms of anti-Semitism emerging from woke ideology. He served as president and CEO of the Jewish Council for Public Affairs as a a national umbrella for local Jewish advocacy. Welcome to my show, Dr. Bernstein. Or David Bernstein, sorry. David Bernstein. I made right. you, I made you a doctor.
2: I never quite finished that, did I? That PhD.
1: <laughs> so I'm gonna ask you just a question. I always try to ask somebody something about their background. You worked on the Clinton Gore campaign. Is it fair to say you're politically liberal?
2: Yeah, I think you could call me politically liberal on a lot of issues. I'd say I'm center left. If you had to characterize me more generally, I'm center left. I'm probably a little bit more center right on foreign policy issues, whatever that means. Um, I want America to um help people who need help. I want there to be um I want there to be health care for, for everybody. So if that makes me center left um, I'll I'll take it. Um, what I what I don't want to be told is that I have to I have to buy into some oppressed oppressor binary in order to qualify the le- for the left, which is something I hear a lot these days. So I'll go with center left. I'm sure other people will will say I'm a right winger just because I disagree <laughs> with them on that simplistic ideology that they're selling out in the public.
1: Well, what would you say uh, are true liberal values, since your organization is the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values? Take us back to classic liberalism. Yeah. So
2: it's one of those words that carries with it a great deal of confusion. You know, a a liberal in Australia is actually a political conservative. You know, so uh, a liberal in American society has become somebody center left. The word progressive has started, to, has started to replace that, but it's still in many people's minds, you know, a um, is somebody who's on the left. Um, classical liberalism is this idea of the free expression of ideas, the rule of law. It's It's not so much of a point of view or a policy. It's like the operating system of our society, of a Western enlightened society, is the ability for people to argue with each other, that we don't all have, any of us have a monopoly on the truth and that in order to reach the truth, we have to hear each other out and be able to uh, express our viewpoints and hear other people's viewpoints. And that's the best way we're going to come to an approximation of what is true. And it's it's absolutely fundamental to a society that, a democratic society that allows that kind of open conversation. So I'm um, so that's what I mean by classical liberalism. I'm also a civil libertarian, so I really like the old ACLU, which would even go as far as defending the rights of, of neo-Nazis to free speech. Um, you know, I, fe- I figured if, if we can't give them free speech, then we really don't have free speech. So that's where I come from. And in my upbringing... The idea of a political liberal, you know, that you were for women's rights to choose, you were maybe for separation of church and state and so forth, that was part and parcel of being sort of a classical liberal, too, because you believed in free speech. But those two ideas became disjoined in the past couple of decades. So people like me, who are political, who were who politically liberal, are now no longer, you know, many of them are no longer free speechers. And I I found that very disconcerting. And I want to go back to sort of being a a liberal on some of these policy issues, but also supporting strongly the right to freedom of expression and believing that that's central to who we are as a society.
1: Well, I tell you that when you mentioned the ACLU, that really makes my blood boil because they used to be so pro free speech and in fact one of the old presidents of the ACLU said the first target of censorship is rarely the last and they seem to have forgotten that and ha- now favor certain groups and and they've kind of lost their way with regard to principles and it's really too they, bad they, they consider free speech just one of 19 issues now So they'll
2: no longer defend the free speech of a cause that um, they disagree with. And that's not really believing in free speech. If you're not going to defend somebody's right to free speech who you disagree with, then you're not really engaging in advocacy for free speech.
1: Well, that's right. You're losing the principle and traveling into politics. Well, I've used the word woke in my intro, and we hear the word woke now. I used to call them wokenistas. Define what you see as what woke is these days.
2: Sure. So, I'm looking for a way of describing an ideology that is spreading, right? And so I'm I'm not using it to describe any individual necessarily, but rather an ideology. And I think woke is still the best term to describe that ideology. Although if someone wants to come up with a better term because they think woke is a pejorative, as long as we all agree on what it is, I'll use that. Um, some people have talked about critical social justice, but it just hasn't caught on. Um, so what is what do I mean by woke, woke ideology, wokeism? Two things. First, that the idea that prejudice and racism and oppression and bias are not just a matter of individual attitude, but are ingrained in the very systems and structures of society. They're in the air that we breathe. They're in every nook and cranny of our society. And the second tenet is that only those who have experienced oppression with, quote unquote, lived experience of oppression, have the right and qualification and authority to define that oppression for everybody else in society. So only black people get to define racism, only gay people homophobia, only women misogyny, and so on and so forth. And I think that can become decidedly a It's it says you have to agree with my perception of American society because I'm the only one with the lived experience to define it, or else you're racist, or else you're privileged, or else you're whatever. And I think that's highly problematic. And that's
1: what I mean by woke ideology. Well, and it, thank you. And and I think people can get that you don't have to have lived somebody's life in order to understand something that keeps us apart i mean my goodness it it's one of the things that brings us together is a sense of empathy and it, you know you didn't have to own a dog and have it die to feel empathy towards somebody whose dog died it it makes it so rigid that um it, and it bothers me because i grew up so much in the era of I lived in segregated housing and then suddenly there wasn't segregated housing anymore and people were coming together and now people are back these kids are back to segregating themselves it's totally crazy and upside down yes
2: i i i think that's right and i i think we should be able to talk to each other that's how you learn you learn because you're willing to subject your ideas your thoughts to scrutiny if if i'm told that you're you're the only one who has the right to define the world for me and i disagree with you maybe you'll succeed in silencing me because i don't want to anger you i don't want to uh, i don't want to alienate anybody but it, you haven't convinced me of anything um you haven't persuaded me that my way of thinking is wrong because i've never really been able to subject it to your scrutiny So you're depriving yourself of the ability to win me over, and you're providing me the opportunity to rethink my view. So I think it's it's fundamentally wrong. It can be that lived experience does give us insight. Like, you know, as a Jewish person who's experienced anti-Semitism, I have something to say about it. And I think somebody who's not Jewish or even somebody who is Jewish should hear me out on what that experience was like. Maybe you'll learn something that you didn't know. But that doesn't mean that I have a monopoly on wisdom on it. And then when there's a data point like a Pew survey that came out that showed that American Jews are the most admired religious group in the country, I have to say, huh, that's a little different than my lived experience. Maybe I ought to take that seriously, too. What does that mean about my my view on anti-Semitism and its role in American society? So I think we, we've we got to be able to hear alternative sources of data and viewpoints if we're going to have the best approximation of the truth. And uh, unfortunately, this current ideological environment, this woke ideological environment denies us of that.
1: Well, I'm just going to ask you something else about your past because this comes up. We're talking about speech so much and and in other shows, I've talked about censorship and all. There's censorship about talk about COVID. There's censorship now about talk about almost anything. And as you said, it makes people afraid to open their mouths. Now, you were from an immigrant family. Does that shape how you see things any differently? Yeah, I think it I think it does. Um,
2: you know, many immigrants come to this country and buy into the idea that america's streets are paved with gold my mom's from baghdad iraq and certainly came to love this country It was so different than the country she came from she wasn't living in a constant fear of oppression a constant fear of political turmoil violence and so forth so for her this is a great great country and that that influenced the way that I understood America. And now you have an ideology that comes and says America is, you know, one of the most oppressive countries in the world, that we're we're really white supremacist country. And I think that 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 is completely lacking in critical reasoning. Where it doesn't compare America to other countries around the world where there's far, far less freedom. There's been far, far more oppression. And so my my insight into what America is as imperfect as it is, it comes out of that experience knowing that there are countries that have far worse records of human rights, far more tyranny, far more oppression. And we should at least understand where we are today is based on what's possible. And you can only know
1: that when you know what another country has been like as well. Oh, I think you're so right. And I feel like every time we travel someplace out of the country, you want to kiss the ground of the airport after you arrive back in the United States. And maybe what's wrong with a lot of people is they've never been out of this country. And so it's easy to criticize if you have no comparison. And they forget that a country is made of individual human beings. And we all have our foibles. We all have our problems. But when we pull us all together we can do a darn good job of uh, taking care of a lot of problems. When we get back, we're going to talk some more about this and how Jews and Blacks used to work together and what happened with all that. But for now, I just have to thank you for listening to America Out Loud Pulse. And one problem America has solved, and I'm so proud to be an American doctor, is... One of the things that can help us with COVID and other respiratory tract infections, and that's Cofix-Rx, we've talked about it before. And this is the main ingredient is povidone iodine. And early on in this whole COVID thing, doctors figured out that iodine had antiviral properties and we've all known about the antibacterial properties. That's what people prep the skin and surgery for. And this also has xylitol. It's also something that's antiviral. And so it's not just COVID. Almost 100% of the respiratory illnesses we get, we get by breathing the viruses through the nose. So if you use a nasal spray, that will nip it in the bud and uh, nothing's a hundred percent, but it's like wearing seatbelts in an airbag. You're going to try everything you can to not get sick. And if you can stop those viruses in the nose before they get all the way down to your lungs, you possibly will not get as sick as you could be. And like I said, Cofix Rx was invented in the United States and it's manufactured in the United States. It's sold everywhere. And you can even get it on the website. There's a little button for Cofix Rx. So click it on, read more about it, and give it a try. I think you'll be pleased. We know
0: you
2: love the versatility and portability of the Genesis Fogger, but sometimes you just want to set it and forget it. Well, we heard you. Introducing the UX4 HOCL Atomizer. This stationary unit quietly protects you and is perfect for smaller spaces. With over a quarter million units sold in Japan, it's now available in the United States. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to see the UX4 in action and receive a 15% discount on either Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. You wouldn't go a day without brushing your teeth or washing your hands
1: So back to the show, before we had the break, I talked about how since Black History Month um, is upon us and that I remember back in the civil rights states, Jews were black people's biggest advocates. They worked together, died together. And then suddenly there's this anti-Semitism that seems to be okay, and there was a time Louis Farrakhan. He was an outlier and and kind of despised for the awful things he said, and um, the idea that Jews were suddenly somehow privileged. I trained at Beth Israel Boston. That hospital was started in the 1900s because Jewish doctors weren't allowed to admit their patients there, and or you know at the other hospitals. So. I Two things. How did this break? What was it, you think, with this whole wokeism that made Blacks suddenly turn down their nose at Jews? And how did Jews suddenly get to be part of white privilege when they've been just as discriminated against in various arenas?
2: Yeah, so I think it is probably a complex mix of factors, you know, one is the rise of the Black Power Movement in the late 1960s started pushing Jews and white people out of the civil rights coalition. So there was a different civil rights vibe at the end of the 1960 civil rights movement than there was at the beginning. Um, there was a desire for uh, black liberation, which meant that they couldn't be working or at the behest of other, others, including Jews and whites. So I think that was one factor. Um, the rioting that took place in the 60s and major cities and so forth also expedited the sort of the Jewish um, exit from many inner cities. So um, if you look at if you go back to the early 1960s, something like 60 percent of the school children uh, school teachers in New York City were Jewish. And I mean I, I bet you if you fast forward that today it's probably you know fewer than six percent, probably two percent. So you can see Jews at one point in time were living in close proximity with black people, which also caused tension at times. If Jews were landlords or store owners, there might have been tension. Um, but um, but there was also greater affection too, because they 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 knew each other and they were part of the same communities. That changed in the through the 60s and into the early 70s. And then, of course, there were people who exploited the resentments, like Louis Farrakhan, who really um poison the well for Black-Jewish relations. And you're seeing this again with a Kanye West who, you know, is uh, probably doing a tremendous damage of the perception of young Black and young Hispanics uh, toward Jews who, you know, he's now um, you know, treating as their as, as, as oppressors. Um, you know, when did Jews become um, part of the oppressive class? When did they become privileged? You know, look, um, this ideology is, is very rigid in nature. And it It has a very narrow definition of who qualifies as a progressive certified minority group. And Jews have never been able to do that because this ideology conflates success and oppression. So, if you're a successful group, you must be an oppressor or you must be complicit in oppression. Or maybe you're blind to the oppression and you've just sort of taken advantage of it inadvertently over many years. I think that's really the 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 problem here um and and so it's very hard for jews to sort of score points in the oppression olympics because we're viewed as a successful community and on average jews are a more successful community than than most if you look at this definition of equity that's become popular you know popularized by ibram x kendi how to be an anti racist it's you know any group that on average is below the mean on any metric um, must be d- discriminated against because there's no other acceptable explanation for why they may be under the mean. And that also means that any group that's over the mean must be part of the discrimination. So I think that's why Jews haven't been able to fit into this intersectional matrix and why we're why wokeism is a uh an is a net problem for Jews. Um it's going to and, and the more it catches on, the more it's insinuates itself into institutions, the more problems
1: Jews are going to have. Well, what you mentioned, this equity, can you explain Is this floats around, and I think a lot of people don't really know the difference of what's seeking equality versus seeking equity, that it, it seems to me equity is kind of a race to the bottom, and there's that dumb cartoon that has people trying to look at a baseball game and one kid is short so they give him a bench and that's equitable but uh try to explain you know the difference in practical in a practical sense right so
2: equality usually implies equality of opportunity that is that everybody's given a fair shot for something for a job for you know position what have you. Equity is the idea that we have to have parity in numbers. So for example, if there are only 4% Black scientists, and I am i don't know what the number is, um, but there are 13% Black Americans in society, by definition, Blacks are being discriminated against, and equity would demand that we reach parity um, in numbers. Um, now, people like me might say, "Look, I want there to be more black scientists. I think we need to invest in young black kids so that more of them will take up the sciences." And more, and and might we might not have thirteen percent anytime soon, but let's invest in the pipeline. But that, in and of itself, was is not equity. I mean that that's not what uh, that what equity is seeking. You know, the cartoon that you cite of like three people trying to watch a baseball game and um, and one of them is too short to watch it. So you give him two, I think, wooden boxes rather than just one. It is a race to the bottom, and there's a there's a there's a spoof of that cartoon where that called equity where you, where they cut off everybody's legs and nobody can see over the top. <laughs> and I think that that's that's a, an accurate representation. You know, there was this there was this case of at Colorado College some time ago where um where they found that Jewish students had very successful Shabbat dinner services on Friday night and the um because they also had outside funding and the Catholic students had the support of the Catholic church but Hindu students the Baha'i students and Muslim students and others didn't have similar support, financial support and their their religious services were languishing and the solution was to sort of make sure none of them were able to have services because uh, equity demands that everybody be given the same. Um, So they disbanded the department of spiritual life there and made it so that um, Jewish students weren't having services either. Um, And I think that's what equity does ultimately it um, you know, and it, and it's not, it's not a winning formula for any society. And you can imagine the distortions that will come because we're just, trying for, we're trying for equal outcomes
1: rather than equality of opportunity. Well, the sad thing to me, because this is a big issue in trying to get more minority students in medical school and various professional schools, but you don't hear people talking about, as you mentioned, get some kids in science early on. You've got to start early And trying to shoehorn somebody into a professional school that they're not prepared for can only be bad for that person. They'll lose a sense of um, self-worth if they're not doing as well as their classmates. And when they have these numbers that come out and say fewer black residents graduate from the residency, well, maybe they weren't prepared, but that preparation has to start early it doesn't mean it's discrimination it's that somebody kind of forced somebody into something that they weren't ready for and and it's sad and what's really sad is to punish people for being successful and what they had done to jews back when i was at stanford there were jewish quotas because they were the smart ones and now there's asian quotas so Asians are the new Jews, it seems, academically.
2: Yeah, Asians really have uh, a lot in common um, here with us. And we've been, the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values has really been building ties with Asian groups and black heterodox thinkers who don't want their kids to be taught that the system is worked against them because that doesn't help anybody. Um, And, and, you know, Chinese and Indian groups and some Hispanic groups as well. We're building these bridges now because we, we see that we all have a stake in liberal values in society. Um, You know, if an Asian parent can no longer send their kid to a, a, a gifted or a magnet school because of this notion of equity well that's that's really disastrous for them that's why they came to this country and the country they they fled to is starting to sound more and more like the country they fled from and so i found in whether it's working within the jewish community with let's say jews from the former soviet union or jews from iran who who they they, they hear one word of this new woke vocabulary and are completely alienated from it because they know what it means it's it's what they heard from their home country this is so so we have a lot of potential coalition partners to build um on and i think that that's really one thing and we i know we're going to get into solutions later on but that's one thing we can do is start to build these bridges with groups that feel an acute sense of of loss in the current in the current discourse
1: well how let me ask you just so people can be aware because just like alcoholism, these different political ideologies can kind of creep up on you. And you mentioned words and and yes. how that kind of uh, changes how you feel about things just because they've changed the words you know, abortion stopped being abortion, and it became reproductive health. And that's the first thing I think of off the top of my head, but this happens over and over so how can people tell like if their company their school their friends have been captured by this woke ideology how do you tell yeah well when they stop when they stop discussing
2: issues with you and they tell you exactly what a right thinking person should think then you know that they've been captured and um you know i <clears throat> It seems weird to me to say an institution's been captured. You know, I'm not by nature a conspiracy theorist. I, I tend not to believe consp- ins- conspiracy theories. And to say an institution's been captured strikes me as that. Yet, having witnessed this happen, ha- having witnessed how powerful this ideology is and how much it can overtake rational discourse and how much it can short circuit the deliberative process in institutions, I now believe that many institutions are indeed captured by an ideology. And what happens in these situations is that these institutions have um, have signed on what I call the dotted line of deference. You know, when I said that one aspect of, of woke ideology is that Only people with lived experience have the authority to define oppression for everybody else. So what institutions do is they say, well, we're not qualified to define oppression. So we'll bring in a DEI consultant or we'll hire a director of diversity, equity, inclusion. And that person now is in charge of telling us what to think and do around these issues. And so therefore, we no longer have the authority to even have these conversations. We don't have standing in the conversation. That's when an institution becomes completely captured. It's what a writer named Matt Brunick called identitarian deference, that you're now going to defer to somebody else based on their identity. And you basically relinquished your ability to have conversations and to think think independently. So that's when you know an institution is captured, when they've, um, when they've, relinquish their authority and they tell you as much you don't have to do you know they tell you well really it's only it's uh you know black people get to define racism and women get to define misogyny and so on and so forth
1: well what's really sad is when they have these mandatory trainings. they have them a the hospital they have them in various other workplaces and People are afraid to swing back to what we talked about in the beginning to speak and to learn from others. And they just sit there with their mouths closed and nod their head as though they agree with everything that's being said. And it, you know, it reminds me of the movie Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where Donald Sutherland, in order to walk around San Francisco, had to pretend that his body had been snatched and there's some point that if you pretend long enough that you've been snatched well then you become snatched <laughs> it's
2: that's right that's great a great analogy yeah i think that that's right i think a lot of people are faking it and that gives me some hope too that if they're if they don't like faking it that they're resentful that they're faking it that maybe they'll, they'll they'll reach a point where they're not going to fake it anymore and that we can coax them out of the woodwork so that they realize that they have a huge stake in the societal discourse and that they can't afford to engage in this, what Natan Sharansky, the great Soviet refused to calls, double think. Um, oh. And I think I was a double thinker. I mean, I knew specifically I disagreed with the the ideology. There were no question. And I'd come home and I'd complain to my wife or I'd complain to my good friends about it. But then I would go through the charade of mouthing some of those pieties just so I wouldn't, wouldn't lose my job. That's a horrible situation, and that's what a lot of people are doing. And maybe for some people, they don't care that much that they have to mouth these pieties. It doesn't bother them that much. But for people like me who you know want to want to only mouth things that we actually believe in, it's an excruciating position to be in. And I, I think that that's what this sort of enforced coercive DEI regime does. It forces people to pretend that they believe in things that they don't. It establishes an orthodoxy that is, I mean, in some cases is just, you know, plain ridiculous. Um, And people, you know, people go through pretending like they, we should, quote unquote, decolonize data. I mean, I heard that one recently, you know, okay, you're going to decolonize data. Well, uh, is there a medicine that you would like to take where the data has been decolonized and all we're doing is, you know, engaging in indigenous ways of knowing what medicine works and what doesn't? So, you know, I think that that um, so some of this is just plain ridiculous and people pretend to believe it when they don't. But in other cases, they actually do capture important institutions like medicine. And you can't actually say what you what the science really tells us about medicine. And I
1: think that's potentially calamitous. Absolutely. And it's sadly, it's only getting worse. And there's kind of this movement to take any reference to race out of various diagnostic plans and it's kind of like well gee there's certain things look at Ashkenazi Jews and Tay-Sachs disease and sickle cell anemia yes other people have these things but as they used to call um, at Sutton's Law uh, when you hear hoof beats think of horses not zebras and right. uh, they're kind of trying to really even flip-flop diagnostic medicine,
2: yeah. Well, you know the other day there was a there was a prominent progressive rabbi who tweeted out that black women are dying at a, a rate of three times white women during pregnancy or during childbirth. and um and and assumed that that disparity and said so was the result of white supremacy and systemic racism. What she didn't know is that Black women also are more likely to have hypertension than white women for probably a lot of reasons, and that the University of North Carolina, I think, um, medicine um, School of Medicine figured this out and started treating women, Black women for hypertension during pregnancy in a way that actually cut their, their mortality rate the same levels as white women. So if you sometimes you misdiagnose some, some social phenomenon, you insist on putting everything into this box of systemic racism, you miss the actual practical solutions in the
1: to to real problems. Absolutely. Well, for now, we're going to take our break. And when we get back, we're going to talk about some of the weird stuff going on in California with education, because they know that's where you capture people is get them while they're young and talk about some solutions to these issues. But for now, I want to thank everyone for listening to America Out Loud Pulse. As you know, we are always a beat ahead. We're on every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern with an encore presentation at 11 and on iHeartRadio the next morning at 8 a.m. so you can listen on your way to work. All shows go direct to podcast in 24 hours. And the episodes are on lots of the networks, Apple, Spotify, Pandora, TuneIn, Stitcher, and iHeart. Make it easy, bookmark americaoutloud.com. One of my favorite things about the show is that there's a different person on every night. I'm on on Monday. Tuesdays, we've got Dr. Jordan Vaughn and Dr. Stuart Tankersley. Wednesdays with Dr. Peter McCulloch and Malcolm Outloud. Thursdays with Dr. Peter Bragan and Ginger Ross Bregan, and um, Fridays with Dr. Harvey Risch, and uh, our nurse, ICU nurse, Jody O'Malley, moved to Monday, nurses out loud. So we've got plenty of medicine and cultural issues out there for you to listen to. Back to a big cultural issue of the day. Okay. Now, I mentioned before the break about California, and I'm a native Californian, born and raised, and I've seen my state do some pretty weird things, and we used to be number one in public schools. When I applied to college, My public school was considered the same as a prep school. Now we're number 48. And are they worried about reading, writing, and arithmetic? No. What they're doing is having new ethnic studies rules. They have a rule where before you graduate high school, you have to complete ethnic studies. Well, tell us about some of these ethnic studies curricula. They're chilling to me. Oh,
2: yes. You know what they say, what starts in California never stops in California. So it might be the Real Housewives of Orange County becomes the Real Housewives of Potomac or what have you. Um, and that's the same with ethnic studies. So it's starting in California, but it's not stopping in California. Um, a couple of years ago in California, they adopted what, uh, the um, model ethnic studies curriculum, which uh, which was built on a critical race platform, you know, sort of an oppression Ideology platform, and they um, and and there was some really really ugly stuff in the initial drafts that people pushed it back against and got rid of some of the the, the most egregious material, but it was still sort of the original sin of being built on that that binary ideology of oppressed versus oppressor, and they 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 put into the legislation what they call guardrails to say that we don't want any school to adopt the original version of ethnic studies but that's exactly what's happened as soon as this ethnic studies was allowed uh, was mandated these really radical groups that first came up with the original drafts are now pushing their own liberated form of ethnic studies so they characterize israel as a settler colonial state they characterize america as a settler colonial state this is written by the most the most radical neo marxist ideologues you can ever imagine that's what they are i mean i don't throw around the term marxist easily but that's what they call themselves and they have they've developed this liberated ethnic studies curriculum and they're successfully installing this software into kids brains in the many school districts we don't even know which ones because there's something like 1400 school districts in california so we don't even know which ones are embracing it but many are they're being trained in this this pedagogy of oppression and um, and now they're spreading it around the country. So there's something like 20 states that are looking at critical ethnic studies and maybe adopting it. Now, there's a lot of places that are adopting some form of this ideology into the education. My kid's school, Montgomery County, Maryland, just went through an anti-racist audit and came out with that we're going to teach kids to recognize and resist systems of oppression. Now, that's bad enough. But when you take ethnic studies, you, it goes from sort of a pedagogy to a curriculum overnight. So in some school systems in California and elsewhere, they're using this curriculum to, uh, to, you know, to teach people, to teach kids directly about who the oppressors are and who the oppressed are. And these are ideologues. It's the most radical form of education. And people seem to be asleep at the wheel. Like there should be a much bigger outcry
1: against this than there has been. Well it makes me wonder when you talk to children and young children there's a lawsuit that was instituted in Santa Barbara County the schools around there because they were teaching this and little kids were coming home crying kids who were mixed race were coming home wondering whether they should hate one parent and and I'm not exaggerating these are right. you know honestly true stories and you know I don't know if I'm stretching it to wonder whether some of this violence comes from really teaching kids to hate. It reminds me of that um, video that uh, was of a school, I don't know, a classroom in uh, somewhere in the Palestinian territories. And Mickey Mouse was telling the kids to hate Jews. And now here we are in America and they're telling kids of some sort of ethnic extraction that white people are oppressors, even their fellow seven-year-old students. So this is it's it's totally insane. It's insane. Now,
2: is that leading directly to violence? It may in certain situations, um, but it doesn't even have to be, lead to violence for it to be destructive. It's going to be profoundly polarizing. It, it doesn't bring people together. It's not a sustainable social model for our society. I mean, you can just imagine what this leads to. It's going to lead to a complete fracturing. And maybe that's what some of the nihilists behind this want. You know, they think that if they can destroy America, that the land white supremacy and somehow will come out of it stronger, a new, perfectly ordered Marxist society. But um, obviously, I don't think that's what any of us want. And I think a lot of the parents and teachers don't realize what ideology that they've sort of, um, you know, fallen into by embracing it in their schools? So I think we've got a lot of work to do to educate people on this. You know, what I find, by the way, is that most minority communities don't buy into this ideology either. I mean, if you look at the statistics about um, the political views of African-Americans, according to the Pew survey, 62 percent of black Americans are opposed to affirmative action in higher education. Now whether you support affirmative action or higher education or not that speaks volumes about the nature the the extent of the political diversity within the black community. So we 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 so we're dealing with you know a lot of minorities don't want their kids to be taught that the system is rigged against them. So I think um that you know while I think that um what what this does is it just pits people against each other and we've got to start fighting back uh, fighting back thoughtfully not fighting back in a way that that um, you know censors people, but fight back in a way that insists that that there have to be arguments, that there have to be discussions. You can't present Ibram X. Kendi without presenting somebody who ha- Ibram X. Kendi, the guy who wrote How to Be an Anti-Racist, who's you know um, without presenting an alternative viewpoint. Like I don't mind my high school senior learning about Ibram X. Kendi. I just don't want it to be only Ibram X. Kendi. Um, well, I want him to hear right. the critique of Ibram X. Kendi.
1: And and this is sort of one of those things like on news shows, if the news station only has people from one political party, whoever learns anything, you just hear the same thing over and over. You want to hear a good debate. So you let we're getting into these solutions. So one of the things, and we kind of talked around it, is you you connected the dots with this divide and conquer. And if somebody has an ideology they want to impose upon us, the best thing to do is get us all separate. Then we can't kind of get together and have a conversation kind of like we're having now. What do you think about this? Oh yeah. It was, did they really mean that? No. If people aren't talking to each other, then uh, whoever's the big guy can take over because we've lost our connection. And I right. think pe- people have to, pay attention and just make sure you don't allow yourself to be manipulated. What are some of your other ideas for uh, stopping this really, to me, kind of a hateful trend in society? Sure. So I have a few and I've had some experience in trying to
2: change the nature of the conversation. So I've, I've seen, I think I've gotten a glimpse of some things that work and some things we're just trying out. Um, You know, one thing that works is getting people to come out of the woodwork. I mentioned this before. Um, Most people are thoughtful, rational, nice people, and they don't like this ideology. They don't like walking on eggshells, and they've made that very, very clear in the various surveys that have been taken. And so getting some of those people to take some, some calculated risk and to speak out is one way to, I think, change the dynamic. One way you do that is to go through what I call the awkward dance. You know, find people in your institution, your workplace, in your um, in your nonprofit, or wherever it is that you hang out, and and ask them. You know, do you have any thoughts on this? I have some misgivings, and let them reveal to you that they also have misgivings. And before you know it, you realize that they agree with you in, in, in entirety, and might become somebody who will go in with you to speak to the boss, or go in with you at the board meeting and challenge the way that the um, that the organization is doing diversity. So I think that we can, we can find allies and that there's strength in numbers there. The other thing that I found that works is that, that, that there's always a few gatekeepers in every institution that are trying to keep you out and stop the organization from having open conversations, but they don't represent everyone. And the way to get around a gatekeeper is finding a sponsor finding someone within an institution who will help make sure that the conversation happens and that neutralizes the role of the gatekeeper and keeping the conversation out. So I find this in the Jewish community a lot, you know, I'm, I'm, um, if I I'm starting to speak to a lot of different Jewish organizations and there are people who are actively trying to keep me from speaking, but if I can find a sponsor in that institution, who's willing to say, you know what? I think we should hear him out and really insist on it. I can usually, I don't need to knock down the door anymore. I can just ring the doorbell. Um, And, and so I think we've got to start. um, I think we've got to start pushing back some, you know, uh, one parent one time said at a meeting, maybe it's time that we open our mouths and close our wallets. So if you're at a at a private school and the private school is you know buying you know radical social justice ideology hook line and sinker maybe it's time to say you know to close our open our mouths and close our wallets and use whatever leverage parents have to stop it from happening. So I think that there are things like that 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 can work over time, and we've got to build effective coalitions. We've got to prove to people that not uh, not all black people, not all Asian people, not all Latino people think alike. I mean, in a way, that's a kind of racism in and of itself. And that we can show that there are alternative voices in each of these communities that want to live in a liberal society where we can talk to each other. And that's why we've got to build coalitions to show that to the rest of society and give them the confidence and the courage of their convictions to pose the ideology.
1: Well, it's interesting you talk about uh, folks getting back to talking to each other. I think back to high school and doing debates and having these contests and whatnot. You wonder, are they even having debates anymore? And, And what's the debate about going to be some topic that nobody cares about because everybody's afraid to debate something like affirmative action or quotas on racial groups? because you don't want a college to be a hundred percent Asian. Uh, these are issues people need to think about that, how, how you define fairness and in some things, does fairness matter? I mean, we all went to process and our opportunity to be heard, but is it fair that 90% of the NBA is black? Should they get white people to play basketball? I mean, there's, so many things and people say oh that's silly that's sports that's this but so what academics is academics why is that different from sports that trying to do this social engineering just seems wrong yeah it does you know in in
2: raising concerns about the way that some of these issues like anti-racism are being taught in schools, People will say you're engaging in both sidesism. There's no other side to the issue of reparations, for example, which is a hot topic. And I'll say, well, you're engaging in one sideism. Is is both sides? You know, I'd rather be a both sideser than a one sideser. And and you know, and I I think um, you know this is there 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 are people who believe that they have all the answers and that it's case closed. And I think we've just got to insist it's not case closed. Um, and um, we're going to have this discussion. And that's how we're going to get changes when enough people, a critical mass of people, however many that is, starts to say, we're going to have a say in this because we have the right to an opinion. And uh, that's what's being lost in the current discourse today, and we got to get it back.
1: Well, I think that parents really are in the driver's seat in this. I think sometimes if you're in your job, and particularly if you're a young person starting out, you have a wife and kids, whatever, you know, trying to save money for a house, you can't afford to lose your job because you say, hey, I think this DEI training is bunk the way you're doing it. And we should have somebody else, depending on your HR department or your boss. It's like, okay, you're out of a job. And so there's kind of personal issues that might make someone not speak out. Parents, they can't fire a parent. You're still the child's parent. And you can go to that school board meeting and really say what's on your mind. You don't have to swear. You don't have to be cruel. But speak the truth about what's happening with your child and that your child is unhappy and telling you that they can't see their friend anymore and all these sorts of things. And and I think it's got to start with these parents.
2: I agree. Parents are a very powerful political force, you know, and you saw that in the Virginia elections when the democratic contender said that it really shouldn't, they shouldn't have a say in the curriculum. And and modern parents, people who had voted for Joe Biden, in the presidential election, we're like, what? Are you telling me I don't have a say in my own kids' schooling? Um, you're going to shut me out of that conversation? That's ridiculous. So I think parents, if properly marshaled, and um, can really become a huge political force in making sure that the curriculum doesn't continue to go off the rails. Um, and, and that doesn't mean that they have to become bombastic themselves. That doesn't mean that they have to try to shut down any discussion on controversial ideas. I, I would push the opposite. I would say let's bring it all on. Like let's let's discuss this. I mean, our kids are going to hear anti-racism, whether it's taught in schools or not. So let's teach it in a way that gives multiple perspectives, so kids can know what they they believe. They 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 hear not only Abraham X. Kennedy, but they hear the great Columbia writer and thinker John McWhorter, who has a who thinks. Candy's out of his mind. Let's have them have that conversation when they're in 11th or 12th grade and really become good critical thinkers.
1: Well, you've said it all, and I have so much enjoyed talking to you tonight. This and I this is such great food for thought. Now you've written a book, which I read, and it is wonderful. It's called Woke Anti Semitism. And it helps distill some of these ideas. And I'll I'll put a link to that um, with the show notes. And I just want to thank you for coming on the show. And I hope we can have a discussion like this again. I'd love that. Thank you so much. Okay. And thank you, everybody, for listening. It's I know sometimes it takes time to listen to a show and we hope to keep you interested and give you topics that continue to be of interest. And if you have any questions, whether it's for me, the host, or whether they're for the guests, just send them in to americaoutloud.com forward slash pulse and we'll get you an answer. First names in the email are fine. And I just want to say... Whether you agree or have other opinions, share the show. And thanks again for listening. And until next week, say it loud. I'm free and I'm proud.